Hi, everyone. Steve Adubato. Welcome to the Mag Mutual podcast. Uh, this is a podcast that deals with a range of healthcare topics and issues and trends. Our goal is to ensure a safer practice for all Mag Mutual physicians. Today, the podcast welcomes Dr. Alan Jaffe, an obstetrician gynecologist in Atlanta, Georgia, also a member of the medical faculty at Mag Mutual Insurance Company. Dr. Jaffe, great to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. You got it. Doctor, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and, and becoming an OBGYN. Well, uh, I guess we should start at the beginning. I went to the University of Maryland Medical School and then to Johns Hopkins to train in OBGYN. Uh, from there, uh, I moved after the residency program was complete to the state of Georgia and began teaching at a local teaching hospital and began a private practice. Over the years, the private practice uh, grew, and eventually I became chairman of the department of Northside Hospital, which is one of the largest delivery hospitals in the United States of America. Mm. So uh, that is how my career developed. Uh, during that process, I got involved with that mutual uh, with an interest in minimizing liability risks with the concept that we physicians can do a better job and have better outcomes. Let me ask you, given your role on the medical faculty at MagMutual <laughs> and your interest in, as you just said, helping to minimize liability risk for all practicing physicians, what's the likelihood of an obstetrician actually being sued during the career? Uh, well, if you uh, look at the study published by the New England Journal of Medicine, 75% of uh, of our colleagues and obstetricians will face a malpractice claim during their career. If you're sitting in a doctor's lounge, we would say 100% of us have been sued. So uh, it really depends upon whether you're practicing obstet uh, uh, obstetrics uh, along with gynecology, uh, but that's a pretty high number, 75% in a career. Hmm. Let me ask you, you talk about those statistics, which are, are, I listen, for me as a non-physician, I did not realize it was that high. But what I'm curious about is what, what is what is your view on the impact of these lawsuits on practicing physicians? What's the impact? Well, uh, for certain, physicians take it personally. Uh, the emotional stress that's created by litigation uh, is intense. Uh, I've only known a few physicians who can look at a lawsuit as the price of doing business. For us, we are holding ourselves to 100% perfection. We believe, even though if you understand biology, that's not possible, still we uh, try to achieve that perfection in every single care-giving circumstance we have. Mm. The stress of a lawsuit leads to all sorts of self-doubt, some depression. We've had colleagues commit suicide. Mm. Uh, and from a uh, general perspective, it can cause you to lose your license uh, and certainly losing um, credibility in the medical community as sometimes these things become public. Dr. Jaffe, your perspective is so important right now, again, and I'm sure that so many listening to the mm -hmm. magazine mutual podcast are appreciating and understanding and empathizing with what you're saying. But I'm curious about this. What would you say the most common causes of malpractice claims against OBGYNs really are? 
So we looked at this, we looked at this um, at MAG because we in fact have the data and uh, it is clear that there are six drivers. One is shoulder dystocia, another is delay in performance of a cesarean section, uterine injury during hysterectomy, bowel perforation during GYN surgery, a medication error, and postpartum hemorrhage. What, let me ask you, you mentioned those areas. Why are there so many malpractice claims associated with these types of injuries? So that is a great question. All of your questions so far have been interesting, but that is the key question, why? And uh, what we can say is, uh, from our experiences, patients uh, expect perfection. And when we're dealing with delivering babies, it can be a, a lifetime injury, uh, whether it is a, a permanent injury that is lifetime or uh, impact on uh, the ability of your child to function or to be appropriately educated. This is something that doesn't go away. It is both costly for the patients to help manage uh, their newborns, as well as not just financially costly, but emotionally costly. Uh, it, it becomes a very, very big deal to them. And uh, the fact that we as obstetricians, we believe we are scientists as well, and we recognize that there is no such thing as perfection. No one can have 100% guarantees for outcomes. When the outcome is not how a patient and their family feel it should be, uh, they turn to uh, malpractice claims uh, to try to um, find some resolution. Doctor, I want to follow up on something. Is it called shoulder dystocia? Yes, that's well said. Okay, so talk to talk to everyone listening to the Mag Mutual podcast right now about some of the risk factors for shoulder dystocia that OBs should be aware of throughout a patient's pregnancy. Okay, so there are outcomes with shoulder dystocia that are very concerning. Shoulder dystocia is when one of the, or both of the shoulders become stuck behind the mother, mother's pubic bone after the vertex has been delivered. This can lead to a variety of neonatal injuries, brachial plexus being the most common, sometimes the clavicle fractures, as well as uh, significant levels of fetal asphyxia. So, before I go through um, uh, the various risk factors, I want to share with you, if you don't mind, sure. a typical common story, a clinical story of what happens to physicians and patients. As a perfect example, there's a 22-year-old patient having her first child. This is an actual event that took place. She arrives in labor and delivery at 36 weeks pregnant having a routine and uneventful pregnancy, a 38-pound weight gain, negative diabetes screening, normal ultrasounds, an estimated fetal weight of six pounds just one week before she actually delivered. And when she arrives, she's already four centimeters in labor with ruptured membranes. Mm. She progresses spontaneously. There's nothing else done with this patient except observing her and monitoring her as she labors. She pushes the baby out with no problem and the shoulder gets stuck. At that point, a McRoberts maneuver was done 
and downward traction was filmed, unfortunately. Uh, and therefore, even though the physician was certain that there was no excess traction, this was indefensible. The baby came out only six pounds, two ounces, and had a brachial plexus injury of the C6, C5. So that is as benign a possible presentation of pregnancy, of labor, and delivery. And in that particular situation, which is why all obstetricians are, are on guard for this on every vaginal delivery, there were no, uh, of, of any kind for that matter, uh, warning signs. So you asked, what are the uh, pre-labor pre assessments? What do we do? Well, we do know that shoulder dystocia is associated if a patient has had a previous delivery with shoulder dystocia. So if you have one shoulder dystocia, it is an increased risk of having another. In those cases, most obstetricians would lean towards doing a preemptive cesarean section. Case I presented to you, first pregnancy, no way to have previous history. Gestational diabetes is another risk factor. In gestational diabetes, babies grow uniformly heavier. Their, their body mass is bigger. There's more the distribution of body fat in shoulders and in the chest and in the abdominal area, making it more difficult for them to deliver. In this case, there was no uh, diabetes history, and the screen was negative. Maternal obesity is also associated, no obesity here. And an infant that was large size, this baby is six pounds, two ounces. So mm. it shows the conundrum we deal with uh, in uh, shoulder dystocia. Now, on the other hand, Steve, um, if a patient presents to you with maternal diabetes, with an estimated fetal weight over nine pounds, with a large maternal weight and body habitus, with a previous history of a shoulder dystocia, um, then it is a good idea to have maternal fetal medicine specialists involved in the patient's management antenatally. And then there's some strong consideration needs to be made as to whether this would be a good idea to attempt a vaginal delivery. And the last piece of this is, is that just like in the case that I presented, if you are uh, presented with a shoulder dystocia delivery, this should not be the very first time that that OBGYN team, and I'm talking nurses, right. as well as scribes and others, uh, see this. There should be what we call shoulder dystocia drills that are done by the entire team in labor and delivery. A scribe should be with a shoulder dystocia checklist should be in the room during the process to consistently and carefully document the various events and the algorithms that we do, including SIM training. <clears throat> and there are very uh, appropriate SIM training models that are available that can help the physician learn what it feels like to apply appropriate uh, practice technique and force application. Under those circumstances, you can at least do the best you can to minimize any harm to this newborn and protect yourself from the standpoint of documenting, and documenting is hugely important, the events that took place in the delivery room. Doctor, I mean, first of all, thank you for laying out in detail with specificity, not only the 
the situation that you described, but also some of the better or best practices that uh, obstetricians should be focusing on to avoid, to potentially avoid uh, the outcome that that we're trying to avoid here. But the other question is this last question for you is on C-sections. Um, so you mentioned C-sections as an as a, as a area where there's real risk involved in delivering babies. And the question becomes, what are some of the best practices in making the best decision around whether to perform a C-section or not for your colleagues? So the term C-section, uh, everyone is consistently aware of, which is uh, an abdominal delivery, <clears throat> and a significant number of uh, cesarean sections are done in a repeated fashion after the previous cesarean section. What we're talking about here is uh, the timing of a cesarean section, whether it be a repeat or a primary, and the decision to perform a cesarean section is very complex. It has taken consideration multiple factors, including mom's medical history, as we just previously spoke, with potential diabetes, the fetal status during the antenatal phase, whether there have been electronic fetal monitoring, uh, MFM uh, participation, uh, recent ultrasounds. And then during the labor process, we watch both the fetal status and the labor progress as well as maternal indications. There may be issues that uh, pop up from mom that uh, prevents her from progressing in labor. So there are a whole host of possibilities. I couldn't possibly give every, um, every possible uh, indication for cesarean section. There are whole textbooks written on that. But how do we reduce the risks? How do we manage uh, the uh, dangers associated with cesarean section and the litigation that comes from that. One of the most common problems has to do with the interpretation of fetal heart tracings. For those who may not be medical, um, the, there is a machine that we have available that uh, gently straps around mom's waist. Okay. And as around her waist. And what, what happens is, is that it can follow both the contraction pattern and the electrocardiogram of the baby. And these two are correlated together. And as you watch them in the fetal tracing, there are categories defined by the American College of OBGYN categories one, two, and three. Of course, category one is not concerning in any way. Category two should begin to open your eyes. Okay, category two says, well, uh, we're looking at the baby's heart rate and there's not a lot of accelerations or none at all. And variability, which is key. Uh, there is minimal or absent variability. These things suggest that baby is beginning to be unhappy intrauterine. That needs to be watched very, very carefully. There are all kinds of tools you can use uh, right. during the decision-making process. You can use scalp stimulation to see how the baby reacts. You can put a scalp electrode or intrauterine pressure catheter to follow more directly the cardiogram of the baby or follow more directly the intrauterine pressure and contractions. As we look at this, the timing is key. And with timing, it is always a good idea to have multiple eyes looking at these tracings, uh, not just mom and, and uh, partner who are clearly watching those tracings, 
but nurses, doctors, and other colleagues, if you have any mm. question, you can get a second opinion. Then in the background of all of this, every physician understands that you can't do a cesarean section without anesthesia. If you are stuck in a circumstance where you have to use local to try to do the operation, it takes an incredibly long period of time and it's not very helpful. So we know that the standard is a delivery by cesarean section in hospitals that do deliveries, 30 minutes start to, uh, from de declaring a cesarean section to accomplishing it. We need to be sure that the labor and delivery units we are in have available anesthesia, have staff that's prepared to do this, and the capability of, of going from a vaginal uh, uh, intended delivery to cesarean section. Dr. Jaffe, I cannot thank you enough for, for laying this out in detail, specific, concrete, helpful. Dr. Alan Jaffe, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. You're most welcome. Uh, on behalf of the Mag Mutual team, this is Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for listening to the Mag Mutual podcast. Catch us next time.